Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at Minute 109, which begins with Ripley starting to put on a spacesuit and ends with Ripley starting to put on a space helmet. And uh, we've got a new guest today. We're joined by critic and screenwriter John Nickham. Welcome, John. Hello. Very excited to be here. It's so amazing that you're this big Alien fan, and I didn't even know it, and I ran into you uh, at a friend's screening, and, and you confessed. Well, I, uh, I'm often asked, as many critics are, what are your favorite movies? And I tend to throw out the same five just to keep it easy, and I always throw Alien in there, and that's the one that people go, Really? It's like, yeah, I honestly think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, certainly one of the best shot movies, one of the best production designed movies, uh, and in certain ways, probably the best cast horror movie ever. That's uh, that's I'll buy that for a dollar. Yeah. So you baited me. What are the other four? Godfather, first one. Yeah. Believe it or not, not the second one. I find the whole part in Cuba completely baffling on the second one, even though I do love the movie. Yeah. Um, 12 Angry Men, Shane, and Psycho. That's a respectable list. Respectable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We could have a whole episode about this Godfather 2 stuff, but oh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have your opinion on that. But we, we are in total agreement on three, right? Well, it's bad. Yeah. 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 Really yeah. great. What? What? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, Godfather 2 is a great movie, but yeah. there's something about... Not to get off on a tangent here, although I will often do that. Um, there's something about a movie that has everything going for it that's not as good as a movie that has nothing going for it. And Godfather 2 had everything going for it. It had unlimited money, unlimited accolades. They could get every, and, uh, and Coppola was fighting, fighting, fighting to get Godfather made, and that comes through. Yeah, yeah. I'll buy that. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That tenacity to... To make the movie, mm-hmm. which Alien also falls into that in terms of how much Ridley Scott wanted to make this extraordinary film. Like everybody cares. And mm-hmm. and I think that's my new mantra these days, which nobody seems to really care about movies today. The actors might care about their parts, not the character, but right. their parts. And the studio might care about making a whole bunch of money. But there's so few films that you see that seem to have this real sense of care that's and, why you need a director to jackhammer their vision onto the screen. And that's that's the movies that survive have that, whether it's, you know, Kubrick or whatever, somebody who's like, this is mine and I'm going to make it uh, my movie and you can come along for the ride or else you're against me. Right. Well, to bring it back to a running theme we've had on this show about Alien, it's the difference between not caring what we think about the movie, the audience. Yeah. Alien doesn't give a shit what you think about it. We've said that a few times. It's yeah. a movie that doesn't care if you like it or doesn't not. care right. if you like it or not. And now it's all about trying to make a movie that everybody likes. You know, yeah. we got to hit every demographic. I think that's maybe the difference we're talking about. At least a big part of it. Which is funny because this movie was a huge hit. Yep. With no stars, yeah. but uh, when it came out, people loved this movie, and and it was it wasn't like a slow burn either. It was an instant huge hit. When did you first see it? <laughs> well, I was in ninth grade when it came out. And at that point in time, I had never seen an R-rated movie in the theater. So I did not see the movie until a friend had it on videotape. And I didn't see it in the theater until I was a senior in high school and saw it at a sci-fi film fest. However, I may be the only person who 
read the book before they saw the movie. <laughs> a I friend believe. gave me the the uh, Alan Dean Foster adaptation of this, and I read the book uh, before I saw the movie. And so in some ways I knew it was happening, but also it colored and informed some of the things that happened in the movie that I don't think you'd know if you didn't read the book. And that applies to the scene we're watching today. All right. Well, that'll take us right into the scene then, I yeah. guess. Well, we should start with this. Yeah. We should start with this with first this. shot because, and as a guest, you can, you can opine on this. Uh, it's an extraordinarily low-angled shot. I would almost dare say it's what we would call a crotch shot. Absolutely. As she puts her leg into the spacesuit. Do you find something vaguely pornographic about this? Yes, it's disquieting, this shot. Also, the original script, she was naked in this scene. Um, and then for whatever reason, they decided not to do that, which would have made it uh, even more disquieting. Is she naked in the Alan Dean Foster book and the I novelization of it? I don't remember. I know that I read a, an interview with Sigourney Weaver where she talked about different incarnations of the script, and there were supposed to be a lot more nudity in the movie in general. Like and there was sex. supposed to be a lot of sex. There was, mm -hmm. and then incidental nudity sort of, when I was reading it, I thought about Starship Troopers, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers and how they tried to make mm -hmm. it sort of incidental. Everybody takes a shower together. That's sort of a future. I think that's the idea that they had here. But the nudity all got taken away and taken away until there was none at all. And this becomes the first time we have even a suggestion of it. And on the commentary, Ridley Scott talks about that, right? Uh, the commentary on the Blu-ray where he mentions that Fox kept asking him, where is the sex? Uh, the the producers and so on. And, and he said, well, here's a, here's a little bit for you, I guess. You know, how he's mincing words when he's talking. Which is uh, clearly pandering, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's the tension about this scene. Like, she's beautiful. I mean, as a man, I like to look at her. Yes. But she's being completely objectified. And yes, she's vulnerable, and it makes her more vulnerable because she doesn't have the spacesuit on yet. Also, isn't it the reverse of what the studio would demand? You want to get that nudity in the first five minutes or the first ten minutes, and here we're getting in, in the last ten minutes. And we're getting nothing sexual before then other than the posters on Parker's, you know, the Playboy posters on, on yeah, his wall. Probably at that point the studio was would take anything they could get. Yeah, exactly. They did shoot the movie more or less in sequence not totally but they were at least he says he was shooting the chasing down the halls and all that stuff with her and he was up against the gun and so i assume that there was something pretty chronological happening in terms of the way they made the movie mm -hmm. well there's something to be said here too a lot of people have suggested and things that i've read that this was a holding off on a titillating moment to me this isn't exactly titillating personally but to some people it is apparently I've, i see comments made about it in threads on facebook and so on and the idea being that this is almost like cinematic blue balling in a way that you're titillating the young male audience right at this point and then you drop the fear in, you drop the monster in and completely cut out any titillation or sexuality from the scene at all or at least the direct sexuality that we're talking about here well that's the hitchcock as opposed trip, to the, right, right the so that's the psycho trick right well, that's what i see this more yeah. as Personally, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I get, she's beautiful. Yes, I never really thought of this as like, oh, cool. Finally, we're going to get to see a little Ripley. But it, but it's more than beautiful because, like, I believe she was. Correct me if I'm wrong. She was 31 when they shot this movie. It's either 29 or 31. What? But that that was the age of the actresses, and I get them mixed up, which is which. But honestly, Sigourney Weaver never looked better, and so I I don't know. There's there's something about it. You, you're seeing. The perfect moment of Sigourney Weaver captured on film here. But it is a weird moment in a horror movie that's been so intense 
that all of a sudden there's this kind of sexy strippy scene and and i think it in many ways kind of disarms the audience and takes them out of the headspace of what we just you know the whole you know the the ship exploding and all that and and kind of resets them you know it's a distraction of sorts i guess mm-hmm. i guess so. yeah yeah well i guess now we need to talk about the they decided to intercut her getting dressed in this spacesuit with an image of the alien and it's hard to argue that this isn't also a very suggestive image of this inner jaw slowly jutting out of the mouth of the xenomorph here. There, there's a, uh, I mentioned the moment in the book that kind of informs this scene. Well, I think a lot of people are wondering why doesn't the alien just attack her since it's been outrageously aggressive in every other capacity and here it's just kind of hanging out. And in the book, it's spelled out that it is, it's like a lion after eating a gazelle. That it's uh, it's curled up after eating something and is enjoying a nap. That's interesting because in one of the drafts of Walter Hill's script, it is eating something. Mm-hmm. Well, so she sees it and is frightened by it. Kind of turns away when she turns around to look at it again. It's eating a piece of flesh. It says, mm-hmm. which to me, I didn't make any sense to me at all. I was, I, at first, I, when I was reading, I thought. Wow, did it get Jones right here or in this well, version? But no, it's apparently just got some leftover some bread jerky or it has to eat. Yeah. I mean, it can't just be injecting people with little space babies. I mean, how does it grow that much unless it eats? There's there's no organic concept of this thing constantly growing without food. So it does have to eat. That's yeah, we could say that I mean they discussed that a little bit though earlier, right? Ash says that we don't know anything about its nutritional requirements. Correct. So this thing might be so alien that maybe it somehow. But but there are certain laws of physics that apply. It clearly has to breathe. It, you know. Yeah, I I guess that then the rapid growth situation becomes pretty ludicrous, though. If it can grow that at that rate in a matter of an hour, then. I mean, that's because it's so alien that to me, that's always been the excuse for that happening. Right. It's so alien that it'll do these things that are even beyond our understanding of physics. And that's part of what's frightening about it. So, yeah, well, inside the entire ship, I feel like there's probably Um, rats. There's probably that's probably why they have a cat that has been suggested. Yeah. And it's like, hasn't it been just kind of up around eating whatever it can get, whatever spare? I mean, this thing is enormous. We know if we if we take a, you know, say a. A, sh- a cargo ship somewhere there are rats there are birds yeah. there are what there are insects why would this be any different it's would, coming from a planet it's a mining planet that has you know sure it yeah. explains it would explain why in the director's cut and they shot the scene where the alien is very interested in jones in mm-hmm. the cat carrier you can't get it out so it swats it away and in the script they actually hill wrote that in as happening here in the shuttle while mm-hmm. Ripley is hiding. That's what she's witnessing as opposed to the alien laying in wait. Uh, it's actually messing around a lot with Jones, like throwing that carrier around and shoving it into some sort of crevice in the ship. So that would explain it's if it's, if it's just hungry, it's trying to get at Jones, that would make sense. But, but otherwise by the time we don't really see all, anything about it. Yeah. That. By the time you cut all that stuff out and by the time you get to this final version of the movie, we've talked with other guests about the fact that, it's easy to say that it was eating people, but there's no real evidence to suggest that it actually eats people. It rips them in half. It it 
it kills them. It zaps them in the head with its with its proboscis. But I don't know if it eats anybody. So that's an interesting justification in the Alan Dean Foster novelization, which has clearly been removed from the movie because mm-hmm. we don't know what this thing. But at the same time, its purpose is besides the fact that it's a killing machine. You're right. There's that ambiguity in the theatrical cut of the movie. There's that ambiguity. There was the idea that it was cocooning members of the crew, correct? Right. That seems cut. cut. So if we just take as canon what we see in the theatrical cut, it's so ambiguous. Why not have it be eating the crew? Like why? Why isn't that? I mean, you can believe that if you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of just so ambiguous. There's really no. Well, if he pulls Brett up into the rafters after he's already essentially killed him, why is he pulling him up into the rafters? Yeah. I mean, this is all interesting questions. Like to me, the cocooning scene. Is terrible. I don't like it at all. I'm glad it's cut. I am too. I, I'm sad that it got back into the director's cut. I think the director's cut doesn't add anything. No. Oh, well, it's terrible. It, it kills the momentum. Mm-hmm. But Aliens, of course, grabs a hold of that and uses it big time. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes canon <laughs> once we get mm-hmm. to another movie. So this is all kind of a strange question. It's something that we're kind of orbiting around here. But if we're just going to stick to theatrical cut 1979... It's so ambiguous, I think, sure, if you want to believe it, eats things, people, everything, that's fine with me. That's as good an answer as you're going to get about what its motivations are. We were talking earlier about how, I think with Erin Hamer, she was making the point that you can believe it's eating people if you want to, because the alternative is a much more disturbing idea in that that, that there's some kind of a sexual thing going on here, a, a, a rape to procreate. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to that yeah. shot of that extending mouth. Right after phallic. we've just seen this, her naked. Right. I mean, it's, it's incredibly intentional, right? Yeah. 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 Well, you could look at it two ways, I think. So we've just seen her practically naked. We've even got this crotch shot. So we got mildly pornographic shot here to match. With this growing phallus, there's no denying that that's what's happening here. Slowly growing phallus that's even lubricated. (laughs) I mean, it's strange how... Yeah. I mean, I just kind of cringe a little bit at these thoughts. But then you could look at it that way. Then we're intercutting it, though, with her continuing to get dressed or shrouding herself from this menace. And in a way, to me, that's where we're seeing her story here. It's not about the titillation of the phallus. It's about the protection from the phallus, right? So once she's fully dressed, it retracts back in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, there can't be any accident about that well, being also, what this and, is And about. what does she grab in the next minute? Something that shoots something else out. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. We're back in Laurie Strode and Michael Myers territory. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Have you done the Halloween minute? <laughs> Somebody, I'm surprised that has not been launched like today. Yeah, really. <laughs> like to, to try to get through the Halloween season, but no. Not yet. Nobody's done it yet. That shot of her face as she's watching, which I assume it has to be that she's watching. She's a, she's conscious that it's out there as she's getting as she's getting into the suit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's interesting because it's not a direct point of view shot. She seems to be, we've seen that shot looking in through the window of the closet. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this kind of beautiful, pr- almost profile shot of her looking out right. towards the monster. Then I think sort of the music starts to come up, right? I mean, yeah. we're, we're, we're really, we know her objective is to get that damn spacesuit on as soon as possible. We're not sure what she's going to do with it, mm-hmm. but she's going to get that thing on. And then she maneuvers towards this kind of hanging helmet. Mm-hmm. Um, Ridley Scott said it was really difficult being cramped in that, 
little closet shooting, especially if he's going to be down that low trying to shoot up, right? Well, I assume that his, when he mentions that in the commentary, that's his way of saying, oh, well, there's nowhere else to put the camera. Uh, it's such a cramped space. Uh, yeah, yes, but the camera does go up another couple of feet when we get to another right. medium shot so, coming up. So that that one, we're not going to give him that one. Uh, definitely not. So we get this nice bookend. The the other end of the book, the other bookend is in the next minute. But we get her looking through this door through the through the window. You got the little number over her left shoulder. Clearly, point of view shot. Her looking straight at the alien and, and observing where he is. And then she backs away and we change camera angles. And then from now on, we're cutting back and forth between her and the alien. But the eyeline's not quite right. And it's not quite observational, right? Yeah. I mean, what do we make of this? It seems as though she's looking. It kind of seems like she's gazing off in introspection or something. Well, I think (laughs) she's looking at the rest of the ship to figure out what her strategy is. And she's going, what can I do with this? And it's like, oh, well, where's the airlock? It's out here. Yeah, so meanwhile, while she's doing that, the storyteller takes us, the audience, over to give us a nice, clear, close look at the monster's jaws, right? Right, right. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's the clearest look of the monster we really ever get. It's pretty close. Pretty close. It's, uh, yeah, I think so. Pretty much everything that's going on in the previous minutes even. Quick cuts. Well, you get those those hands. Mm -hmm. That's the one that's really, really, they really hang on. And it's kind of funny, like we already talked about this, but... Uh, it's it's kind of a funny shot as those hands just drag their way up with the long nails and everything. That's one cl- really clear shot of mm-hmm. something that actually we haven't seen except in quick cuts earlier in the movie, grabbing, you know, hugging mm-hmm. or whatever, Dallas. And then this proboscis, this uh, inner jaw, we or boy, tongue we with really teeth. take a look at it. That's like, that's the close. It almost, you know, it's like looking that long look that we had at the chestburster earlier. Mm-hmm. We even get the same, pretty much the same teeth. I remember somebody mentioned, it might have been Ebert's review, saying that the alien is, it takes the worst parts of an insect and a lizard to create this this creature. And I would add, and of robots, because there's something incredibly robotic about the the jaw or the, the whatever you want to call those, retracting. I mean, it looks like a piece, it looks like it's coming out of the Terminator, Yeah, you know? It's as if the the outer shell is the organic thing, and inside, yeah, that's a good that's a good call. I mean, it's definitely the biomechanical nature of mm-hmm. Giger's art, but yeah, it is almost like inside. What is inside this thing other than acid for blood? Is it all just mechanical inside? I mean, you could make that assumption. So. Yeah, well, that move of its approach toward Lambert when she oh, dies, you yeah, know, is this very... incredible mechanical gliding shot with the hands out in front of it. Mm-hmm. It's really really amazing. I did notice that given. The hands, the slime, the sweat on her face, the condensation within the helmet. There is something really wet about all of these shots that you can really feel the textures of it. You know, it's yeah. not cold and hard and shiny. You know, it's it's all very organic feeling, despite, mm-hmm. you know, the biomechanic design of the creature. It's got a wet look like Michael Mann shot it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Where, where every outdoor shot of a street is a wet street, yeah. you know, that type of thing. Yeah, it feels like it would be really humid in that in the closet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, though, in relation to the biomechanical nature of the design, because that's sort of the nature of surrealism, right? You're trying to take something absurd and you push it just as far as you can, but it always has to be somewhat grounded, right? So maybe that's just one little natural element that you're adding to this thing that might kind of seem too absurd if it didn't have that texture mm-hmm. to it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and I would argue that that's the problem with 
99% of all CGI, as hard as everybody tries to make it look real, the thing that always seems to be missing to me is is that sense of of being able to touch it. Yeah, you know, yeah. which is why I'm I'm of the opinion that the last great action movies all took place in the 80s because it was the last time it was pre-CGI. Um, Road Warrior, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Aliens, I consider one of the greatest action movies. I consider Alien a horror movie and Aliens an action movie. Um, there's something about those movies. It's like the, the, the furthest that we had gone in the craft of filmmaking before CGI made us get lazy again. And I guess we should add Jurassic Park to that. Nineteen that's ninety, right? Or is it ninety one? Ninety three. Yeah. I always feel like that movie is very practical feeling to me because, yeah, because they, they built they, they built, built so much of right. it and then they just used the CG to augment it. And Terminator is, two. Terminator two has a ton of practical yeah. stuff. I mean it's a lot of people driving motorcycles. Well plus you in, know. Yeah. Definitely. Terminator two and the Abyss, both the James Cameron experiments with that morphing CGI mm-hmm. were owning up to the fact that it didn't look real too. That was yeah. one of the things they're not, he was never trying to create a real thing. He has Robert Patrick and then he morphs him into something very fake, which is this, I mean, it is a mechanical object or a liquid metal object. So yeah. it's not going to look real ever. So that was good. And, and as far as Jurassic Park goes, my rule has always been just don't look at the feet. Never look at the feet and it looks perfect. The CGI in Jurassic Park. As long as you don't see where the impacts are happening. Oh, yeah. That's really where is, it starts to look a little cartoony. That's where it doesn't work. Yeah. But like you said, when they first meet that T-Rex, there's so much practical. There's a practical T-Rex that looks down at them. And once you've sold that, you can sell the rest of the CGI. And you know maybe that's one of the things they need to learn is a little of both maybe helps you sell the CGI. Once we're convinced and we're on on board... With a practical effect, you can add some CGI later, and maybe we'll buy it a little bit easier. And why the the practical effects in Aliens are just so icky, you know? I mean, there's there's something about that movie that just really creeps you out, like the scene where um, she's stuck in the med lab, and I mean, they're little puppety things, but man, they're crawling right at your feet. Yeah, and it'd be you could easily do that with CGI now, and it wouldn't be the same. No, I mean, it just doesn't seem so. I'm. Mm -hmm. Never afraid. I cannot think of a time I've ever been afraid of a CGI monster. I can't. Like the last one might have been that T-Rex where I was like, my heart was racing because yeah. that T-Rex is chasing him. But I might have been looking at the practical one. So I don't know. You know, I wanted to mention uh, the editing in this scene, just in terms of pace, how he's once again slowing down how many shots we're getting mm-hmm. within this minute because he had accelerated it with all the running through the halls and I think it's fascinating how the movie's kind of back to feeling like 90% of the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. which is that we're given time to look at everything. The shots are actually longer. And it's pretty impressive that he can go back to that strategy after all that running around mm-hmm. in those corridors and have the impact that it still has. Well, you know, Alien was the, the first movie that taught me how to appreciate something that was slow. And it really is, even even compared to some of Kubrick's stuff, it really is one of the slowest movies, mainstream movies you're ever going to see. And yet, I think maybe that's why I keep coming back to it, because it's slow. And and, and I, I kind of revel in every shot. And that's a, that's a great point that, you know, it, the movie at a certain point gets too fast, um, especially when you start throwing in like the strobe light stuff. It really starts messing with you, and and you can't go faster at that point. At some point, you got to slow it back down. Here's that chance, and yet the strobe click is still there as yep. the 
as the mouth thing comes out, we've, we return to that sound of the clicking that we heard in the hallway mm. when the strobe was going, yep. which more kudos to the sound design of this creates a sense of it being part of the same thing. Even though we've blown the Nostromo up, there are still these sounds that sound like the Nostromo. Yeah. Let me ask you something. You've been analyzing this now for weeks. What is the biggest revelation you've had looking at this minute by minute? That's a very good question. Mine is pretty banal. I've really just gotten a deep appreciation of the use of multiple cameras and how the cutting and how the compositions work. So as a filmmaker, I think for me, that's the thing I've found most interesting is just to, to really watch the the technique of camera in the film. I don't know if this is revelatory or not really, but I'm one uh, that watches a film and just takes in performances. I'm not big on analyzing performances. Mm -hmm. I kind of enjoy them being left as they are. And, and if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. And in this case, it's been nice to actually dive into all these amazing performances and see the subtleties. Ripley is probably my favorite cinematic character of all mm -hmm. time, but I never really thought about how, much Sigourney Weaver put into building the character and how much she just hits all these wonderful little notes all through this movie. And she does it again in the, in aliens, but in this particular movie, I just never noticed all these nice little beats that she hits and everybody else to Ian Holm too. I mean, I've always loved Ian Holm, but man, I didn't, we would notice so many little things about his performance that I've never like isolated and gone. Wow. He reaches out and pokes her. <laughs> you yeah. know, I never noticed that before. Cause it, they're seamless performances. If you don't stop and look at them closely, you don't really need, see, need to see all that stuff because it's all just natural to you. But looking at it closely, all these people, the entire cast did an amazing job. I think that's... That, that scene where Ian Holm runs really fast. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, not to go back, but I'm just curious, <laughs> what did you make of that? What does that mean? One of the more discussed topics on social media, and so when we put things out to our listeners, everybody's got a little idea about what this is all about and to me it was always it's always been one of the most baffling things and i always just thought he was getting his engine going that there was something in his engine that wasn't working right and so he had to do this little thing just to get his heart started up maybe Honestly, he was cold i don't I, know i just kind of settle on the he's twitchy he's a twitchy android yeah and this is a moment it doesn't make any sense as, see to me mitch that's that's an interesting reading that kind of doesn't make any sense to me like what do you really have to he's not a wind-up well, that's, the, that way that's the twitchiness it. of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like something's not working, and so he does this thing to just keep. So his he actually has going. to physically do something. To, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe the the milk tubes were clogged. Mm -hmm. Right. Had, okay, exactly. I get it. Sure. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of ways you could read that. You know. It, what did you think, John Nickham? I, that's the thing. It's always struck me as such an odd thing to keep in the movie, and I think it's just a hint, uh, a subtle hint that this person isn't quite what you think he is you know and i i love that to me i know uh dan o'bannon hated the fact that he was a the a robot uh, to me it's it's literally the best part of the movie because you've already got an external menace and what can be more interesting now you've got an internal menace yeah i'm right there with you i, I think, think it's what makes the movie really glorious i'm fairly certain dan o'bannon is the only person only person like exactly aspect of the movie but yeah, I mean, uh, to go back really quick to the whole jogging in place, we talk, when we talked about it, I, you know, it was early on in the film when we don't try to keep any sort of um, 
you know, we all understand that we know that Ash is an alien. Like some sh- minute shows will try to withhold reveals and not talk about them until they get to that minute. But we didn't do that. And I was saying, well, as a human, I get that. I get it. I might do that. That's the kind of thing I would do. Mm-hmm. Like if I was cold or if I was was a little low in energy, I'm get the heart rate going real quick and go work. But as an android, I never made any sense of it. So that's what's funny about it is yeah. that, yeah. Did it, it feel artificially sped up to you? No. No, I think it's... Feels no. real? I think it's home. Okay. Just kicking it into it high feels, gear. It feels a little phony to you? Yeah. Feels a little off. I mean, he's a 50-something-ish guy, and it felt too fast to me. It's too <laughs> It'd be fast. interesting to know if there was a little tweak. Uh-huh. I don't it. think there was. I don't, I'm not uh, sure. I don't think there was. It'd be fun to know that there was, though. I'll go back and look, but I don't think so. So I had one last thing. This is more of just a side note anyway about the design here. So we're... Um, probably at the, we're at the last contribution from our friend Moebius, the great French illustrator, comic book artist. Um, we haven't talked about him a ton because the story I'm going to tell will illustrate why there wasn't, he really didn't actually contribute to a lot of what you see on screen. He did a lot of concept art. If you want to dig up his concept art, it's all really great. Um, I think he did conceptualize the openings to the derelict and a lot of the external parts of the derelict and so on. And, and he uh, had been working with Ridley Scott prior to that on that Tristan Isolde. Tristan Isolde, yeah, because he was looking for that. Well, they were both on the same page as far as the Japanese aesthetic thing, because the Tristan and Isolde thing was supposed to have this Japanese futurism to it. And so that's what brought us to the, the spacesuits, the compression suits here, that have the samurai-esque appearance. And I was going to say that this particular suit, this is really the exact same suit from earlier in the film that we see Lambert, Dallas, and Kane wearing. And that they took and they painted it white and they took the headlamp off the, the helmet and so on. And it has the, that wonderful like kind of hieroglyphic design around the edges of the visor. We'll talk about that more in the next minute. But um, the story I was going to tell was I did, that I didn't realize, well, this is from Dan O'Bannon directly. Uh, he was very excited. You know, they worked on Dune uh, with Jodorowsky early on. And he was very excited to get him on and he showed up in England, Moebius did. And he started designing the spacesuit and then payday came and it was... $500 as opposed to $5,000 a week that he was getting paid. And he said, cool, here's some spacesuit art for you. I'll see you later. And went to France. And I didn't, we never mentioned that, uh, why he had such an abbreviated impact, you know, stay with the crew. And I thought it would be uh, funny to mention that these suits are totally Moebius, but that was all he really it's, had to give. It's just he couldn't one afford. zero. Yep. Just, just one, one zero. very valuable zero that he could, he just didn't have time for it. And so he, uh, he left and, this is about all we get, so oh, well. just a little side note there. That's all I have for this minute. Do you have anything else? Let's move on to the next. Well, John, where can we find you on the internet if somebody wants to look you up? Uh, you can find me at uh, kansascity.com, kcstar.com, or on my own website, uh, worstgig.com. You can find us, of course, at alienminute.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at alienminutepod. We're on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast. We also have a tea Public store where you can go buy a T-shirt or a mug or something with uh, some of our designs on it. Um, and that's going to do it for minute number 109. We'll see you tomorrow for minute 110.